Um, Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello. Welcome back to Real Talk. Today, we're doing something a little different. I am here with Renee. You typically see Renee behind the scenes working tirelessly to help put together the podcast. But today, she is on with me, Jamel Harp. And we're just going to have a pretty frank and open conversation, some real talk, like we've been talking about doing all season, about how we feel around our identities and around the world around us, what's happening, and the invisible labor it takes to put together this podcast and to contribute to social justice work. So I'm extremely excited to have this conversation and allow all of you to be a part of it. So yes, Renee, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm good. So for those of you that are with us, me and Renee have had these conversations numerous times. There's so much happening in the world. And when you are a marginalized person, a person of color, d deep embedded in diversity, equity, inclusion work, it comes at a cost. So that's what we're going to talk about today. How exciting. I'm excited. I'm ready. I think there's a lot that can and should be said, um, especially with just like everything that seems to be happening all at once and we're expected to take it in and feel it in the moment and then compartmentalize it and keep it moving to your everyday life as if there aren't these like traumatizing things happening every single day um, that have to do with maybe not you, you know, specifically, but you were like people who are like you and who's to say it's not gonna happen to you and you're having to like, walk around with that reality that like, hmm, so this is this is how it is. This is how it's going to be. Interesting. Um, so yeah, excited to have this conversation. Yeah, people don't often acknowledge in this work the effort and the mental tarnish it takes to be a person of color fighting in social justice, fighting for equity. When we're arguing and protesting about police brutality, and being a person of color, there's a personal piece of you that's in that fight, which I would assume would be different for allies. When we are talking about discrimination and racism and things that will directly impact our everyday existence, there is a level of your humanity that is a part of that work. And that work, as you know, Renee, can get quickly tiring and daunting at times. Um, I'm not sure for you, but some days I wake up when I'm doing this work and I don't want to say I'm angry, but I'm quite fed up and I'm quite tired. Um, this work can get very tiring, especially when you're always trying to justify to, your, your, to the world your humanity, justify why you deserve equity, justify why you deserve, you know, not to be targeted by the police more than others, right? When you're arguing just for basic human necessities, that work can get tiring. Yeah, I think the argument itself is so, it's just so much. It's like you have to live it and then relive it and then relive it every single time you talk about it. Um, and, but it's also just as frustrating when speaking to people, so if, if you feel the need to have to explain the oppression and the injustice or whatever and to be met with sort of a dismissal in that like perfect perfect example i like was talking to somebody 
who happens to be white. And I um, was trying to explain to them um, any sort of reservations that I have when it comes to the healthcare field. Um, and, you know, in the future, my decision whether or not I want to have children knowing the different risks and stuff, you know, for black women uh, versus white women. And not to say that white women don't um, experience, you know, trauma or, you know, different things from doctors and, and, you know, when they go, of course not. But it was like trying to explain to a person why I'm at higher risk of mortality, of my child having higher risk of mortality. Oh, yeah. Um, all of the different health problems that can be avoided. Like, yes, you put yourself at risk when you give birth and as a result, you could get certain sort of like ailments or whatever, but some of those things can be avoided with proper guidance and direction and care and being taken seriously by your physicians. And the just lack of that <laughs> for black women um, puts us at an even greater risk. And then to be met with but do you think that that's the reason why that's happening? Mm -hmm. Like, do you think it's because you're black or those women are black? Like, because those things happen to white people. At no point do we say these things don't happen to white people. But it's more about um, the, like, imbalance of it. Like, why are there more of you at, in general, but less of you that experience this? than our population and we're severely less than your population like we're what like 14 15 percent yeah <laughs> it's like what and like it's not it's not equal so please don't please don't dismiss or discredit what i'm saying because you know one white person that went through that or you yourself went through that okay but for your experience there are about 10 other black women that went through that like to yeah. put that in perspective it's like what and this is why people scream, believe black women, right? This is exactly why people scream that. Because when we have these conversations and we're talking about the problems that impact our community. And what I think people forget is when there's an issue that impacts the black community, it impacts the American community, right? This is an American issue. So we already know about how high black infant mortality rate is in this country. There's no arguing around that. There's no arguing with the mistreatment of black women in hospitals and healthcare. There's a clear inequity there, and you can see it in statistics when you're looking at the experiences that black women are telling you. It's backed up by statistics if people want to research that further. But I know exactly what you're talking about because quickly, when we're having the conversation about experiences we have had with racism, we're often met with the question of, but how did you know? How did you know? And I think because specifically white people have never been black before. They don't understand that. We know when it's about racism because it's our lived experience every day. You start experiencing racism at the young age of kindergarten. So many of us, our first instances of racism happened at an incredibly young age where we have been made to have to be aware of racism when it happens. And I don't think people realize that we all have that competency when we know that it's about race because it's clearly about race. Even if you try to tell us, oh, no, it's not about race. It must be because of something else. No, it's about race. Um, and the more that people try to go around that idea instead of calling it out, the easier it is to allow that problem to sit there and flourish. 
when we don't call out racism for what it is, you know, oh, no, maybe it's the economy. Maybe it's something else. Maybe there's other factors involved. But if we're not calling out the issue, the root of the issue, the racism that is the underbelly of almost the entire country and how all our structures are built and impacts all our experiences, um, we will never unroot that. And I hope that allies that are listening better are able to engage with marginalized people to talk about, okay, I believe you. And if you're curious of seeing how does someone know about race, maybe you should ask more questions like that instead of turning it into an interrogation of, oh, I don't believe you kind of thing. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think, I don't know. I think that they can see that when um, a person of color or someone within a marginalized population um, makes that argument that like, okay, yeah, there could be other factors, but the main one is because I look different. Um, But, you know, when there are things like, uh, trying to think of an example, like um, affirmative action and the argument to be made about discrimination reversely, right? Mm. So now all of a sudden we see, we see how, oh, my white skin disqualified me because mm-hmm. they're only looking for brown people. Um, it's like, oh, now you can see that? <laughs> now you can see that when we've been saying, like, that's how, that's, I mean, that's in every single sector for us. And you're worried about that being, I don't know. Like, to me, it's just, it's ironic that it's, um, it's a selective sort of thing. It's definitely a selective argument because people will yell reverse racism. And I will be the first person to say this on the podcast. Reverse racism is not a real concept. (laughs) I'm sorry if you are listening to this and you believe in reverse reverse racism, but there's no such thing. There's no such thing. It's almost like the statement black on black crime. Black on black crime isn't a thing. It's just (laughs) called crime. It's just called crime simply. Um, Reverse racism does not exist. And also affirmative action is not racist. Um, We all all benefit off affirmative action in different ways. I think when people hear affirmative action, what they think about is, okay, I'm getting hired for a job and the black person is going to get the job over me. Not necessarily. It's about being intentional with hiring. But also white people benefit off affirmative action. It's called legacy students at Ivy Leagues, right? There's a lot of ways in which white people have historically benefited off of affirmative action and things of that nature. Um, so when people cry reverse racism, um, I, w- I would argue that it doesn't exist. Um, and well, it's more the fear that exists. Right, right. It's, it's one of those things where because it's made, it has a name, it's put out mm-hmm. there. We know what affirmative action is and that's an easy it's an easy excuse to be like, oh, and and the reality of the situation is in any in any arena that affirmative action is instituted, um, if it's between a black person or a white person, they give the black person a job. They're going to create space for the white person. So it's not, you know, even with affirmative action, we still only make up about ten percent of any given institution. So it's like. Okay, yeah, there's affirmative action that guarantees us this specific space, and we're allowed to come in the space because there is this thing that creates, you know, say we can only allow in whatever, whatever their quotas are. But like, you know, there's, they have their numbers, whether or not Mm -hmm. they're mandated to have the number, they have their numbers that they say, well, we don't want, you know, too many. (laughs) We don't want to be too diverse. We just want to be enough to say that we are. 
but not two. You know, uh, we want to make sure that the dom- the dominant group stays dominant. Um, and so, if there's a qualified person, if there are two qualified people, and one is a person of color, and one is white, well, they're going to hire. You know, or accept. You know, in the case of college, whatever. Um, the the person of color to add to their diversity. Um, but they'll create space, <laughs> whether it's that position or a different position somewhere else. Like, oh, we just felt like you'd be a better fit somewhere else. They're in too. So it's like, you can always create more space um, for people of your kind um, versus letting in outsiders where we want to limit that. So I don't know. I think when people cry reverse racism, one, yeah, that's not real. It's it, like, you can't, I literally cannot be racist towards someone white. Um, Even that right there is a controversial statement nowadays. It, it is. It is. I could have, and you know what? I understand. I don't, but like, I could have my own personal biases or biases or discrimination mm-hmm. or whatever within myself about white people or anybody who's not me, anyone who's not like me. Um, it doesn't necessarily have to stop with white. <laughs> I think you could have those about, I could have that about somebody in the Latinx community or someone in the Asian community. It, it always seems to be magnified between black and white, but um, it could literally be anyone. Um, yeah, you could, of, of course, have your own personal biases, but like at the end of the day, um, I'm outnumbered. <laughs> so like there aren't, there aren't any policies or any institution or anything that bar white people from thriving as there is for, you know, other marginalized. That's why we're marginalized. That I mean, with other populations that don't have the privileges that you're just born with when you're part of the majority. Yeah. I, I say that's a controversial t- um, take because I know a lot of people won't agree, but I'm going to back you up here. And I think the where people lose lose when you lose others on this topic, um, because you can be racist in individual um, incidents, right? Individual connections. So, like maybe one on one, you know, this conversation is you know biased, and there's some type of microaggression happening X, Y, and Z. But for in order for a black person to be racist to white people, it needs to happen at large scale. Racism is systematic. Black people cannot be racist systematically because we do not hold power in any structures in America. Therefore, we are not able to be racist to white folks. We just cannot. We don't hold power the same way in which white people do. So even if we have interactions that are racist on an individual level, there's a huge difference of power because it's not happening at a large systematic level in which racism happens in America. So I think um, this is also a nuanced definition. A lot of nuanced definitions of race and racism to deal with power and power structures. Um, but I'm glad you brought that up because now we're getting real hot takes on the podcast. Now we're getting real hot takes. <laughs> this is the real, real talk. This is the real talk. It's so... <laughs> Even going back to the labor and the exhausting feeling, right? After you have done the social justice presentations, after you have had the arguments about, you know, and had to debate and showed research about why these problems are existing to try to convince others that these are problems that are happening all around us, whether you choose to see them or not see them. There's a tiredness to that. There's a heaviness to that. Like there's a weight. Do you want to talk more about that weight? 
Yeah. Um, so my my major right now, I'm currently um, a graduate student here at Southern. Um, I'm studying for my MS in sociology. Um, sociology is relatively new to me. I, I left psychology and transferred into this. I was like, I need to know more. After last summer, um, which like I graduated last spring. So um, when, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and, you know, all of the things that happened um, in the beginning to middle of last year really just sparked my interest. It was kind of like, I've known that this was a problem, but because of my upbringing, I almost like, like I never viewed myself to identify with a lot of the issues that pertain very much so to me, but um, I just was oblivious, I guess, and was just like, I need to know more. And um, I love my classes. I think they're interesting. I've never been good at history, so I'm definitely learning a lot. And it's good to know these things. Um, and I guess I'm, I'm, I'm more so talking more about my education and the labor it takes to sit down and read mm. the assignments, do the assignments, and discuss them in classes and different things like that. Um, because I don't, I mean, I, I went to protests, I, you know, talk as much as I can, but I'm, I've said this before, I'm not Angela Davis, I'm not like <laughs> Angelou, I'm not out here, you know, in court fighting, representing myself, you know, I'm not, I, you know, I, I don't, and in that, I don't consider myself an activist yet. Um, I think I'm, I'm trying to add that to the list of things, but um, it's, it's hard, it's hard, it's, it's hard to read the history. And it's good to know in case, you know, someone's trying me and I can be like, okay, but actually this is what happened and I have the facts to back it up. Um, but it's, it's hard, it's hard to like sit down and have to relive the past and to read how black people were viewed, to have to read the things that they had to go through. And there's, it's, it's conflicting because it's, there's this celebration side of it where it's like, oh my God, like all the things that they did and still we rise, still we're here, you know, and they were able to kind of pave the way for more of us to come in. My family, I, I come from an, an immigrant um, and the things that had to be done in order for years later, my mom to come here and be able to come in America and live in America and thrive in America and have a kid who's, in, you know, Jamaican American um, and be in college, getting her master's degree. You know, there's mm -hmm. the celebratory side to things where it's like, okay, the struggle happened, but look what came from it. But it's also like, but why did we have to struggle? Like, why do we have to go through these things? Why do we have to be treated this way? And then to, and then to read that, and then to watch history repeat itself with different faces. And now we have social media. So everything is drilled in our head 24 seven. Like you turn on the news, they're talking about it. You go on, Instagram, they're talking about it. There are threads up on Snapchat about it. If you have Facebook, it's on Facebook. If, if it's if you have Twitter, there's some sort of hashtag that's trending where everyone has their. It's everywhere you go, everywhere I went, everything was George Floyd. Everything was Breonna Taylor. Everything was all of that. Was about police. Was about this. Was about that. Was about how Black Lives Matter. This and is it that? And then you've got the rhetoric that our leader was putting out to kind of combat it and having to deal with that. And it's like every everywhere you turn around, 
there's something new that you have to digest, that you have to process, but still expect it while a a global pandemic is happening Mm -hmm. that's attacking our people specifically. And, And they know about that and allowed it to happen. And it's like, it's, it's like there's only so much of you know people can take that I don't condone it. I do not condone this. I'm making this clear. I don't condone this. The the looting and the burning places down and stuff. But I I can understand people being angry and feeling like okay y'all won't listen. I bet you listen now. Like I can I I understand. I don't condone that. I do believe in protesting and voicing your you know fighting that way, you know, don't breaking into businesses and setting things on fire. But, um, you know, I, I, I felt the anger and it's like, I don't even know these people. I don't, I don't, I don't know the people that have, but we don't need to know the people. Right. That's the thing because we have, we are so aware that at any moment we can be those people. We can be that hashtag. We can be on that shirt. I, I know for me, when, the George Floyd incident happened. I had a response like that I haven't really had previous. So like you and your academics, I have spent, which is one of my favorite projects I've ever done. I have done about three, four semesters on this where I worked on creating my, my family tree and then, you know, researching my family back into slavery, figuring out which plantation we were on, what experiences my family was having and how to be transitioned out of slavery and then through Jim Crow, through black codes, through mass incarceration, like how did my family, like many African-American families transitioned through that journey. And then I took that, that research I have my own family to create my own family stories that represents how people navigate through systems of oppression. Um, it was a huge project with the art installation attached to it. It was a gorgeous project I was really proud of. However, I have academic knowledge around the historic oppression and trauma that Black people have felt for generations. You know, the lynchings, all the ugliness our country has to offer. But when this happened in the summer, it hit me a lot different. I think often America is so desensitized to Black pain. You know, Black trauma has been normalized in TV and in the film in a way in which nobody else's pain has. And we, even as Black people, have to turn on the TV, on the nightly news, and watch us be vilified. Our parents had to turn on the nightly news and watch their friends be vilified. My grandparents had that same experience. So for generations, we turn on TVs and we watch us die. And... To be a person of color and to watch that happen, and then on top of that, to have so many people being like, this is not a big deal, this is not a problem, Um, they had it come in X, Y, and Z, and hearing that kind of rhetoric is extremely disheartening. But it hit me different. It hit me, I felt very emotional. And I, I think a lot of us have talked about this, where it's like we're grieving, and I don't think people understand that we are grieving. You know, like a loss to a part of our community is a loss to us all because we realize how vulnerable we can be. And we still are, even though we have had so much joy and so much so much bliss and progress and how, you know, black people are making it to the highest lands in the offices. They're making it to all these high positions. But still, we are so vulnerable. And that is a emotion 
and heaviness that comes with this work and also comes with just existing. So. Yeah, I always, I, I think it's just even you mentioning how high we can get having a black president, having a black vice, vice president. president. Yes. Yes. Um, like to be able to achieve that in America is like, huge and yet it was never expected that having these people in these positions of power actually changing how some people view black people um and the the people themselves going into the office knowing that they're on a different standard than for the president his vice president and for the vice president her president um you know than them having to work twice as hard having to be twice as clean, (laughs) no scandals, no nothing. And even still, people still pick apart and and try to, you know, degrade um, everything about us. I just, it's, it's, it's annoying. It's, it's, it's like, I think, I think what, I I don't even know how to communicate this. I don't know that you can. It's, it's, it's Mm. really, unless you, you're us, you know? Yes. you can't feel us unless you are us. Um, you can try your best to empathize, but it's never the same. And um, it just to know that, okay, what else do we have to do to prove <laughs> that we are human, to prove that we deserve respect, to, to, you know, to prove that when we can hold such high positions of power and still, that could have happened to President Obama. Like he could have been just walking around somewhere and been accused of something. There, and it would have mattered who he is. There is countless and countless <laughs> examples that have happened this year, last year, the last hundred years, the last 400 years that justify and explain what is happening. Um, I wouldn't say justify, but explain what's happening to us, right? There's countless examples of racism that's happening every day. But people still deny racism. Um, when you look at the Capitol riots, People were just charged with trespassing, majorly, for going inside the Capitol building during a symbolic vote, right? Where the where the kill yes, where the vice president was screaming, "Hang Mike Pence!" Okay, so we have this incident on one hand, and then um, last week we had a representative of Georgia in her in the Capitol building trying to get in the office where her governor is signing a bill to strip away voting rights for Georgians. Right, where he wants to create a bill in the middle of a pandemic, which is a whole separate conversation. So people aren't allowed to give water for those that are waiting in line. And mind you, if you have to wait in line longer than 15 minutes, it's starting to smell like voter suppression to me. But that's a different conversation. And she was escorted, dragged out the Capitol building by four police and held in custody in the jailhouse until a congressman had to come get her out. Okay, so we can drag her out of Georgia's Capitol building, but we could let these people, right, that are possibly armed, that are, that's an angry mob that is yelling to hang the vice president of the United States, whether you like him, love him, or hate him, he is the vice president of the United States, into the building and almost in the same exact room. And the consequences and the reaction by authorities were completely different. So there's so many examples of racism that happens every week. And people will continually deny it. But, you know, I say that's predictable. 
and it's unsurprising, right? I think far too often we think, you know, what happened in the 60s can't, that's not us. We are past that. We are past that point. What happened in the 60s, those were regular Americans, right? Those were regular people standing outside of schools while they started to integrate out there screaming, yelling, and spitting on black children. Those are regular people. Those were school teachers, lawyers, doctors, judges that were sitting there doing that. So I don't know why people have this absurd, like this idea that somehow we are different from them today. Yeah, they're making it seem as though we're talking about like the 1600s. Um, the 60s really wasn't that long ago. No, our grandparents remember it just fine. Right. <laughs> you know, like there are people today that swear up and down that they don't, you know, I don't see color. The people that I know. So I'm not just talking generally. Oh, I, yes. I, I, I know I these know. same people. That, oh, I don't see color and like, you know, that I can't imagine how, you know, people are just treating, you know, black people like that. Because to me, you know, if you take a white person, a black person kind of open, they look the same on the inside. Right. We know this. And, and, and that's, you know, that's how they feel. But it's also like, wait, didn't you go to school during the time where there were separate water fountains? Like where there was literally white schools and black, like, weren't you a part of that generation? How was you just didn't notice? You didn't notice that everyone around you was the same? <laughs> like, you didn't notice this? You're shocked. You're shocked to have these things brought to your attention. You lived these experiences. Um, it wasn't that long ago. That same generation is still here today. Um, and the funny thing is that if, you know, if you hold these sentiments, then your kids are normally going to pick up on that. And their kids are going to love that. And their kids and that. It does not end just because the generation, it's a different generation. Um, because we learn a lot from our parents who learned from their parents. And my mom may not say to me, um, I don't know. And maybe she might, she doesn't, but like, you know, for people, my, your parents may not specifically say to you, Oh, don't trust black people. Or this is this about that the black people. But if they see you uneasy or something around black people or uncomfortable, or, you know, your tone is different. I mean, kids aren't stupid. So, you know, I think it's it's one of those things where the rhetoric is just passed down. So this idea that racism happened back then, but it's a new day in America, it's not a new day. I mean, we're, we're just products of the past generations. Um, so, you know, it's yeah. up to us to change our minds. But, you know, that's... Racism yeah. is, a, is something that is taught in a learned behavior. It is taught and learned. So just the way we are being passed down generations of trauma, people are being passed down generations of racism, right? That belief system is being passed down and handed to the next generation. And if families are not having these conversations at home with their children and with their loved ones, then racism will still be alive and well. That's part of being anti-racist is denouncing racism whenever and wherever it happens, as long as you're doing it safely. Often, I think about even the heaviness of some of these conversations, right, where people then try to weaponize the messages of MLK. And I have seen that a lot in terms of the Black Lives Matter conversation. People saying Martin Luther King Jr., right, the late and the great, would not approve of these protests. He would not approve of the riots, even though he is famously quoted for the riots are, you know, the voice of the unheard. You know, he would not approve of X, Y, and Z. But I think people often quickly forget history and they try to whitewash our own history and whitewash our own leaders. Um, MLK was vilified 
in the 60s. He was vilified in every newspaper and every cartoon sketch. If you pull up newspapers from the 60s, you could see images of MLK distorted in front of burning cars, in front of burning buildings, painting him just how they're painting us today. The same tactics they used to try to discredit and stop MLK's work is the same efforts you're using today to stop our work. The same way they stopped MLK from securing voting rights is the same way they're trying to stop us from holding on to them. The same way that they try to discredit and paint MLK as a villain to white America is the same way they're doing that to the founders of the Black Lives Matter movement. I have a lot of opinions about the Black Lives Movement as a whole myself, but I think there's a difference from criticisms versus flat-out racism. That's the heaviness for me, right? Not only to have all these things happening, but then to watch them use people from your own community to further try to discredit you just merely uttering that your life matters. Right. And I think even just that in and of itself, um, having to argue that your life like matters to me is is a lot is most of my heaviness is mm. that this that that I know that we're the ones that kind of have to do this um and that there's another there's another life that others get to experience where they don't have to their life just matters um and we have to make the argument we have to stand in streets in the hot blazing sun of the summer and walking up and down while having police staring at us looking like try something um, and having to explain and 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 like protest why my life matters um, out of fear that, yeah, I'll end up a hashtag, I'll end up on a t-shirt or someone's poster in a different protest um, or having to, you know, having to have my family have my death, <laughs> you know, blasted on media for months and months at a time and they have to relive that every time to then have a, a trial a year later and hear and have people releasing toxicology reports and having lawyers oh, say, yeah. oh, you know, he was he was a drug addict and that's why he died, you know, um, to have to have my family and my loved ones have to go through that. But ha then even having the fear right now while I'm here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that I'll get stopped by police one day. Um, as a kid, it was um, not wearing hoodies. So I'm a hoodie person. I love hoodies. And yes. if I had a hood, I'm putting a hood on. Like, I just, I'm that type of person. And, and my family hated that. It was, if I, first of all, I very rarely have a hoodie. And if I did, it was do not put that hood on. When we're out, you don't put that hood on. It was never explained to me why. Like, it was never because, you know, white people are watching. It was never explained to me like that. You were just told to do it. Just don't put yeah. that hood on. Take the hood off. <laughs> um, you know, we've talked about this. Get your hands out your pockets when you're in a store. Yeah. Um, a lot of times my mom would hold my hand so that, like, my hand was in her hand. I couldn't just roam around. Um, but, like, you know, having to be conscious of my actions, my surrounding, the people who are around me, um, what I look like. I went to the store. I didn't, you know, I went to the store yesterday, the day before, um, this week, and <laughs> I went to the store. And I was just looking. I was on a hunt. I was trying to build like a specific outfit. And I just, I went into Nordstrom um, because, 
you know, sometimes you can find some good deals or whatever. So I go into Nordstrom and I walk in and um, I turn the corner because the brand I wanted was at the corner. Well, the a woman that was working there immediately like looked at me, didn't say hello, didn't say anything. She, you know, I wouldn't have thought anything if she would have just said, hi, you know, can yeah. I help you for anything? That's annoying to me, but it's also like, okay, fine. Like I've worked customer service. I'm going to assume you're doing that because you have to, because I remember having to do that. So like, she didn't say anything to me though. She's just staring at me. And then I saw I'm looking, you know, you look at something, you take it out. Mm, do I see myself in this? Nah, all right, put it back. Um, and you're, you're just, you're looking around. This girl's eyes were just on me the entire time to the point where I turned around and was like, I promise you, I'm not gonna steal anything. Like, why are you staring at me? You can't even say hello. And I'm not super confrontational. I'm not a person that, is out looking for fights or looking for racism. I mean, that that's not really my MO. Um, but it's also like, okay, you, you could have been a little bit more discreet <laughs> instead of staring at me and not even just acknowledging that I'm here as a shopper. Like, what if I actually am just shopping like everybody else that's walked in? And there were other people that walked in that she greeted and kept it pushing. It was almost like, I'm gonna watch her. And it's it to me to have to feel like I have to go in a store and prove that I'm not a thief yeah. by always having my hands out. I don't carry big bags. I've I've trained oh, myself yeah. to have big bags. I either have just my keys or like a little clutch. That's it. So you know I'm not smuggling nothing out. Um, I, you know, I don't wear super baggy clothes, so there's nothing under my clothes. Like I don't have anything. I'm always conscious of that, and I've said this to you and to our you know group behind the scenes i am very calculated in my behaviors i'm that's what being black in public is like that's exactly what it's like and i bet you some of our listeners are probably thinking okay maybe that's all in their head right maybe Mm -hmm. maybe you know these things are only existing in the minds of black folks What, what people fail to realize is because incidents are so reoccurring and they're predictable, racism is often predictable. You can see when it's happening right before it happens. You can tell the energy in the room when you walk in. It happens to all of us so often that we do these things to try to prevent them. Honestly, we, you know, we're trying to prevent confrontations. We're trying to prevent us from being embarrassed. We're trying to prevent these entire altercations from happening because even when we are doing nothing wrong, we can still be vilified and we can mm-hmm. still be treated as if we have committed a mass crime. When we are just shopping in a mall, when we are walking in the street, walking our dog in a neighborhood in which we own a home in, when we are visiting a local park for a barbecue, there is countless and countless cases of black people that have been unarmed, you know, just minding their business, having peaceful days, and racism happens to mess their whole life up. And so, yes, black people are extra cautious when we are in public, especially in spaces where there's not enough or many of us. Um, and I, I hope our listeners understand that through our lived experiences. Yeah, that, oh, God, there's so many, so many stories. Yes. I'm sure you've got, you've probably got so many as well. I mean, I, like, just recently, I told you guys, I just recently, I bought a new bag, like a purse, a little purse, <laughs> like a little crossbody bag. And there was a security tab still in it that I never took out. 
And so I kept beeping in and out of stores. And every single store I did that, it was like I had a flash of something that never happened. And it's never happened to me where I've been, you know, pulled aside. Okay, ma'am, let me see your bag. Um, that, that yeah, That's never, because normally I don't have a bag, but I had a bag that just had a security tab I forgot to rip out of it. And it, I felt apologetic every single time. And mm-hmm. I've worked in stores where people are beeping as they should, and they just don't turn around, they don't acknowledge it because they're gonna, I mean, like I'm not stealing. Like they're gonna know that I'm not stealing. I, I felt the need to explain my beeping bag because um, I didn't want I didn't want to be harassed. I didn't want to be hassled. I didn't want to be spoken to as though I am a thief because it literally I bought this bag. Um, I've gone into stores with my friends um, that are not really stores of my style. Um, very much they're just you know I I've only a different professional style of store. Right. I've seen magazines and I've seen the people in the magazines and they don't look like me. Um, and so I don't shop there. And but friends will go in. Oh, let's just look inside. And I have to physically remove myself from the store because I feel as though I'm being watched, whether or not I actually am. I think that's the really interesting part of it. Is it's just a perception. It's not actually happening, or it could be. It could not be. But in my head, that's all I see. That's at, you're hyper aware of different things like that. Um, that to, to me, that in and of itself is exhausting. To feel like I can't just show up someplace. And just the trauma <laughs> that that just so highlights the trauma and PTSD that comes with racism, that byproduct of racism, and what does that do to those in which it marginalizes? Like, how does that even, even when it just, it's not loudly and it's no one's yelling slurs? I think people, when they often think about racism, they think about racism like the Ku Klux Klan, mm-hmm. like extremist groups. They think about stuff like that. That's really extreme level of racism. But we don't think about the little things, little microaggressions, little comments, the, the stares that you think no one notices. There's so many other things that are happening way below the tip of the iceberg of racism that is happening on the bottom that happens every day and so many encounters in which we face i even think about because you know intersectionality right how does racism show up for us differently and even being a black male even as a child you are looked at so much older than you actually are if you ever want to see the difference, go into any store when you see black children and how behaved us black men have to be when we're in public. I love how you talk about the how behaved we have to be. Other children can run around the store by themselves and cry and have hissy fits. Mm-hmm. You won't ever see black children doing that because oh, no. we have to be behaved. And I think about, I, I've shared this before. I'm not sure if it was on air. But even as a little boy, you know, with my grandmother in the car, uh, we got pulled over one day and two cops came out and one came to my window. And I I said, you know, what's the problem? Mind you, I'm like a little boy. I'm like seven, eight. I'm a very, I'm a young child. Um, And he was extremely aggressive with me. Like, oh, like keep, keep quiet before you come with me. Like extremely aggressive. And that, that, even that lived experience I've been reflecting on about, Even when I was a small child, in the eyes of America, I was already grown. I was Mm -hmm. already treated like an adult. That you would never treat um, a white child like he was an adult, like the way you treat black children. And you even look at cases of um, that little boy who was killed um, playing with a toy gun. 
right? They view us as criminals. They view us as threats, even when we are small children. And mind you, I, have, I was never even a big child. I weigh 120 pounds at my age now. Okay, I'm only five foot eight. I'm not a large man. So as a child, you could imagine, I was a small child. I was not a threat to anybody. And so even my little self was a threat. And I think that is just hyperalized for my peers. Uh, and so I'm sure that you have countless stories from the perspective of being a black woman. When we think about intersectionality, there's so much happening in terms of racism. Yeah, I mean, I you know, as far as the racism part of it, I'm sure. I'm sure there have been times I've gone to the doctor. And actually, yeah, I'm thinking about it now. Over the summer, I had a budding ear infection. Uh, but it was, it was definitely in the infancy stage. It was, you know, I could catch it before it came, became a full-blown infection. I went to the doctor the first time, and I had a white male doctor. I had seen him before, and he helped me out, so it wasn't, I, you know, I didn't think anything of it. But he went in and really just downplayed the symptoms that I was telling him, and then prescribed to me, even if I had, if I was making, you know, 60K a year or whatever, I'm not. But even if I was, I would look at this prescription that he prescribed, this like 200 and some odd dollar prescription after insurance. And it's this little tiny bottle of whatever um, that I'm supposed to use for like a week um, and be like, okay, I'm paying 200 and something dollars to use one time for one week um, after my insurance pays whatever they pay. So I'm like, this doesn't make me feel any better. I ended up leaving. I was like, okay, thanks. Have a good day. I left, and then the next day, I called back the doctor. was like, I need to come back, and I need to see a different doctor. Like, so if I have to, so my doctor um, has several different locations. So I'm like, so if you have to send me to a different location, I literally don't care, but I don't want to see that doctor again. And so they put me with a different doctor who happened to be a black woman. And I went in, and not only did she explain things in, you know, doctor terminology, but she brought it to layman's terms. And was like, so basically what that means is da 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 So don't be too scared because it sounds scary, but it's not. And she's like, okay, I see the prescription he described. Uh, prescribed you we're not going to use that one because i don't know why he would give you that so we're going to look for the two cheaper ones and normally the cheapest is sold out so we'll look for the second cheapest and i got it and my ear healed and it was fine but it was also like okay she actually listened to me and worked with me on that right um, i've experienced things as a black as a black girl child um where men look at me so much more mm. like older than I actually was. Like she's always I, being grown. Why is she wearing that? Why is her right. hair like that? To yes. Earrings or to wear a certain color or if I had lip gloss on or something or it wouldn't even have to be lip gloss. It could be chapstick, but my lips look extra shiny. Like to be hypersexualized at a young age. That is, that is what I got a lot of. Um, I vividly remember mm. having this this insecure feeling that I feel now when I'm walking and you've said this and as soon as you, I wanted to say something I was like no we're not gonna talk about it but like you said this um a week or two ago where oh my god no it wasn't you it was someone else that talks very much so like you but anyway um someone said that their sister um whenever she's walking past a group of guys and, the, and she's black as well a group of guys um, just like on the street or whatever she feels the need to pull her phone out and look distracted mm. i do that all the time because i don't want to be bothered 
I don't want to be bothered with the cat calls, the, the degradation of my body. Um, I don't, I don't want to deal with the harassment the and then the violence. Verbal, right. And then the verbal abuse. If I say that I'm not interested, I have to feel that as though I have to say, Oh, I got a man, whether or not I have a man to be like, to, for you to hear my no when I say no. Like, I'm not interested. I don't want to talk. Don't touch me. Don't nothing. Like, I, I'm just, I'm literally, why can't I just walk down the street, y'all? Like, I'm just trying to walk down the street to get to where I'm trying to go. And you just happen to be here. I got a lot of that as a child where grown men would comment on whether it be your legs or whatever part of your body. Um, and I'm like eight, <laughs> you know? Um, it's just, it's, it's, it's so like that's what I experienced more so than any than any racial thing and it could have just been I was a lot more aware of that and how it made me feel versus um the the race aspect of it but I you know and I don't know the experience of little white girls and you know do they experience that's a whole but, separate conversation, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why, you know, I want to be careful and say that I don't know that that, that had anything oh, to yeah. do with Because we're not experts. We're not experts here. We're just sharing our lived experience. I, yeah. Well, I think it's so interesting because a lot of these memories I have of my childhood and just of my lived experience, I have forgotten or have not really paid too much attention to because they were extremely normalized. And having these conversations every day has allowed me to reflect over my lived experience in the context of the world around me in ways in which I don't think a lot of people are doing. If you're not having these conversations within your social circles, whatever those may be, a lot of these things that have happened to you or are happening to others around you, you may not notice until you start talking about them. Because I realized that even when we do these podcasts and we have these meetings and we're talking about all these experiences, so much stuff comes back up in my mind. Like I can think of so many of my friends that have experienced exactly what you're describing, being hypersexualized as a child, you know, having that same experience um, walking down the street or in bars and clubs by men, um, that feeling of uncomfortability. That is something I think so many women can relate to. Um, yeah, this is, this is a really powerful conversation, quite frankly. I, I kind of want to turn it into a direction of higher education mm-hmm. to make it, make this, a, you know, this is the podcast about higher ed. And so I think with all the stuff we have talked about, you know, people may be wondering how does this relate to higher ed? How does, does this relate to SESU? What would you have to say about that? I'd say... I think just being sensitive sometimes to what any of us could be going through. You know, I think a lot of times when you're sitting in classes and you're learning about, um, especially in wake of the the murders that happened in Atlanta um, with the, you know, the Asians that were there and how Asian Americans and, uh, you know, Pacific Islanders and whoever, you know, are feeling right now and being aware of that. So when you're teaching your classes, <laughs> oh yeah, um, understand that they may just be stories to some people, but to other people, this is life. This is something that they're experiencing on a regular to just um, vaguely talk about 
um, food insecurity or housing insecurity or crime or police brutality or sexual you know assault to talk about these sort of really heavy um, experiences and concepts in a, in a class and to just make it so generic and so facts 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 and yeah that's important whatever for the sake of your papers or, or exams but understand that some of those conversations could be really triggering for people that have to live with that on a day-to-day -day. and it's not something that they could just you know uh, okay class over and you know can put to the back now they they've had all this emotion all of all of this stuff be brought up in the span of an hour and 15 minutes and they can't just turn that off mm -hmm. <laughs> going back into real life where it's not a class anymore this is life um and i think you know as professors um and even people that aren't professors but like staff that are you know working with students or whatever just being able to you know empathize as much as you can and trying to put yourself in their shoes and be like you know if i went through this i would want someone to be sensitive with me and my feelings and how i could be feeling in this moment it's a lot and being understanding of that i think that would be you know good to you know it's not always about what new policy what new rule what new website what new this what new that mm. what new committee could we build it's not always about that sometimes it's just about remembering mindfulness uh, right right i would even add to that right expand upon that so i think it's about providing context in classrooms too so when you're talking about very sensitive topics you know, make sure you allow space a little bit after class. If someone wants to debrief with you, they are able to debrief if they have felt any emotions. And that's just not for black students, but for all students, right? Any of these deep topics may be a lot to dive into for an hour than to just walk away and keep going with your day. So make sure that you are allowing a few, a few minutes, you know, five, 10 minutes after class for the student to debrief with you one-on-one, -on -one. I think is important. Also, mm -hmm. when you're looking at DEI work and, you know, this is typically a field full of people of color, um, just know that the work in which we do to produce a podcast, to, you know, produce um, social justice initiatives, to create social justice programs, all these wonderful things in which our university direly needs, but just know it comes at a emotional cost. There's an invisible labor that people do not see to this work that is mm -hmm. happening and which should be compensated for, right? Because these are, these are people's emotions that they're having to deal with while they're doing this work. There's a heaviness to it. And I hope me and Renee talking about our lived experiences and talking about our emotions while we do the work um, really illuminates that, that invisible labor does exist for many of us that are folks that are marginalized, that are out here doing the work. So yeah, I would say definitely mindfulness. I love that. 